passage for all of us that gets deeply, deeply practical. It gets into the weeds, into the details of how exactly you can be a priest in the places that you spend your days. That's what this passage is about. And so though it's not from 1 Peter, the book that we've been hanging out in for a while, it's absolutely uh, about that as well, how God's equipped us to be practical. Priests, who wants a hypothetical priest? Who wants someone who knows in their head, God's called me to be a priest but doesn't know how to actually be a priest or actually how to lift a burden or actually how to pray for someone or how to encourage them? That's not helpful. God is creating a nation of practical, feet on the ground, rubber meeting the road kind of priests. So let's pray and then we will... Uh, Take a look at what's on the page in front of you. Let's pray together. Lord, I was just thinking about this uh, when Alex was reading the passage. I didn't pick up on it earlier, but you said in your word, in view of my mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Lead, teach, evangelize, serve, encourage. In view of your mercy, I imagine you could have said, in view of my command, you could have said, in view of my mission, in view of who I am, do this. But you said, in view of my mercy. So Jesus, my pleading with you is let the words that now come out of my mouth be clear from you, but also be words of mercy, words of good news. This is not just like biblical principles about how to be a priest. This is the gospel. This is good news. In view of how you have treated us in kindness and in mercy, we get to pour out our lives. We get to give them back to you. We get to give them away to each other in the world. That's my prayer. Be pleased from the fruit that comes from this message and how it lands in my friends' minds and hearts. We pray in your name and in your power. Amen. Well, some of y'all, probably most of y'all know that two weeks ago, 40 of us got back from um, our annual mission trip to Puerto Rico. We go there every year. We partner with a group called Hunger Corps. Um, They're a part of a, a church, just like this church in San Juan, that has adopted a neighborhood there. They've taken responsibility for it. Uh, I wished kind of that we had saved that Jeremiah 29 passage, uh, the Jews being exiled to Babylon, and, and God says, unpack your bags, put roots down, you're going to be here for a while. And he basically says, adopt the neighborhood. Seek its welfare, pray for it. In its prospering, you'll find your prospering. Kind of wish I'd saved that for after this trip because we were with people who had literally done that with an entire neighborhood of 50 houses that they had moved into. But anyway, we're with this group and uh, on our mission trip. And the first two days of the mission trip always are just kind of like get unpacked, acclimate, have fun. So unpacked our bags, took some naps, and people walked around the town. And then we went into San Juan, had a great time. And then the next day, went to church, went to the beach. Slow start. Monday morning is the first time at the work site. And we pull up. We're ready to go. We've been preparing for this, talking about it, praying for it, and raising money for like four months at this point. So we roll up in our vans to the work site day one, and we're like ready to just destroy some work and get it done. 
got our sunscreen on, we got our now jeans filled, we're like, got all of our work clothes on and we're ready to go. And we have our little orientation, they do the little safety briefing, and then we walk down the road to the house that uh, we're going to be working on that week, meet the residents who are living there. And I've started to notice over the years that the first morning of work is the hardest and the slowest. We've seen such a pattern with this that Casey and Grace and I were talking before the first night. We're like, we need to prepare people for what day one is like. It's really hard. You would think, because the work is so hard. No, everybody came to work. They're ready to go. The reason it's hard is this. So we get to the work site, and uh, they, they gather us up, and they start to number us off. Hector was our work site supervisor, and Hector said, okay, I need a group of six people. Everyone raise their hand. Okay, there's six over there. Y'all stay put. Four people for another project. Four people go over there. You get the point. They break us down into these little small groups of people. And then, one by one, he'll go and connect with one of those groups and says, you six, come with me. And he goes up to the front yard and he says, we're going we're gonna to dig like a 40-foot trench. It's got to be about a foot and a half deep for the electrical line and the sewer line, and y'all are going to do that. They're like, okay. He shows them where. Then he leaves them and he goes over here and he says, y'all are going to have a jackhammer and you're going to be like, you know, jackhammering part of this window frame out because it shouldn't be where it is. They're like, awesome. And he goes around and gives everybody their job. And as he, as he leaves your group to go show another group, you're just sitting there. And you're like, okay, like all dressed up and nowhere to go. And you wait and you wait. And you just start messing around or talking. And, you know, maybe 45 minutes later, the supervisors come around and they have the tools finally. So the six people group digging the trench are like, here's the pickaxes, here's the shovels. The jackhammer people are like, here are the jackhammers. Here are the trowels you're going to put concrete in there with. And then everybody starts getting after it. Um, everybody's morale goes through the roof. Here's the point of me sharing this story and why day one is so hard. Without tools and jobs, you can be as clear as you want on the mission, as clear as you want on your role, as clear as you want on where you're supposed to serve, where God's calling you. You can't do a thing about it if you don't have tools and a job. We had all that stuff. Four months of praying, preparing, reading books, getting ready for this trip. We knew our mission. We knew our role. We're UGRUF. We're here to partner with Hunger Corps and help them rebuild relationships in this neighborhood. We knew our role. We knew our location, La Amiga neighborhood, this street, this house. Tony and Sonia, we knew all of that. But we didn't have tools, so we couldn't do anything about it. When you don't have tools, you can't do anything about your mission. When you don't have a job, your morale goes through the floor. That's why it's hard. And that's why on Sunday nights every year, now we have to prepare people. Tomorrow's going to be hard because you're going to want to get after it and you're not going to be able to do anything about it until you get your tools. Once you have those tools, the job could be as hard as imaginable and you're still having fun. I mean, I'm looking at some of the faces in the room like Lottie and Walker and, and Catherine got a job of, they must have been storing these eight-foot stilts. They were supposed to support a roof that was going to get concrete poured. They're about eight feet and about that big around. 
and they must have been storing them at the bottom of the ocean. They were completely rusted and locked together. And there's like 30 of them. And they're like, uh, we can't do anything else with the concrete until y'all break all these free. So they give them like motor oil and sledgehammers. And they're like, knock them free and then lubricate them so that they work. It was, looked like terrible work. I mean, one of them's holding the pipe. The other one's like smacking it. And they're like bouncing every time. They're in the sun. There's other people mixing concrete in the sun. It's hard work. But when you have a job and you have tools and you already know your mission, it's fun work. And you get after it. I want to ask you, I want to do a pulse check with each of you. This is a little moment between me and you for a second as individuals. Where are you with this series we've been doing this spring? Some of you might be your first time. I get it. You're excused from this question. But for the rest of you, you've been around a few weeks, you've been around every week. What have you done with First Peter so far? Where are you with it? Do you feel like we felt like Monday morning at the job site? You're beginning to realize, you're getting clarity about your identity. Remember week one or week two, you look in the mirror, and I hope and I pray that you're beginning to see maybe one day a week instead of zero days a week, you're beginning to see a saint of the living God look back at you. You're thinking about yourself that way. You're seeing your friends that way. You're getting clarity about that. Some of you might be getting clarity about your mission. You're beginning to, it's actually registering with you, I'm a priest. I've been set apart by God as special in my sorority, fraternity, my lab group, my house in Pineview, wherever. I'm different. I'm a priest. I'm holy. God has intentions with me in this place. Maybe you're getting clarity about your mission or your role. Maybe you're getting clarity about your location. Babylon, the world, exile, the stuff we've been talking about. You feel the aggravation of life in exile. You feel far from home. You feel like a square peg in a round hole in a world that doesn't value what you value or worship who you worship or see any meaning in what you're building your life in. It doesn't define anything the way you define it. Maybe that's making sense to you. But your morale might be through the floor because you still haven't found your tools or your specific jobs to do anything with what we've been talking about. Have you felt that? If you have, listen. Because Paul is about to come by group by group. He's already given you your mission. Peter's already given you your mission. He's already given you your role. He's already given you your location. Here's where you're going to do it. And now he's saying, here's the shovels. Here's the, here's the axe. Here's the jackhammer. So that you can get busy. So that you can start getting after it. I believe that your morale, your joy, your sense of impact and meaning as a follower of Jesus will increase as you learn the tools that you've been given and how to use them. And you begin to see, like, these things do something. Like, the tools that they gave me, I was able to dig a trench with it. I was able to knock out reinforced concrete with that thing. So that's the check-in about this series and where you are with it. So what are spiritual gifts? And, and Paul doesn't use those two words, but he says... Um, I'm going to have to scan for this. He says, 
in verse 6. We have different gifts. And elsewhere in scripture, he calls them gifts of the spirit or, or, or gifts, spiritual gifts. What is a spiritual gift? Well, what is it not? It's not. He's not talking about natural abilities. Now, natural abilities are also from God. If you read the Old Testament, when they're building the temple, it was the spirit of Jesus who gave architects the ability to design buildings, brick masons the ability, the craft, the skill to bring beauty out of little bricks and carpenters and artists. And... But here Paul is not talking about athletic ability or a magnetic personality or a sense of humor or you have a photographic memory or a mind for science. He's not talking about that stuff, even though that is from God. He's talking about gifts that God, that Jesus has given you for the specific purpose of constructing, building up, laying new layers on other people's faith in their maturity in the gospel. Listen to this from Ephesians 4. This is Paul also saying this. So Jesus, when he was, when he was resurrected and ascended into heaven, Jesus poured out gifts on his people, on his church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers for this purpose to equip his people, to equip his people for works of ministry so that the body of Christ, the community of believers, might be built up. Your God's plan to build up his church. You're the construction crew. That, Christ, that the body of Christ might be built up until everybody reaches unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and becomes mature growing up in full maturity to Jesus. So summarize all of that. What's the purpose? What is the spiritual gift for? To build up the faith of those around you. Is it just for Christians? No, there's a spillover effect. There's a spillover effect onto other people. We're gonna define and talk about the actual gifts in a little bit. There's a QR code on the back of your page. I hope and pray you read that article in the next few days. It'll really get into the specifics of what these gifts are and how you can discern them. Uh, but in the meantime, um, what are these gifts for? What effect do they have? Well, they build um, other people up. They encourage other people. So if you have the gift of encouragement, you should expect people in your church, in the REF community, to be encouraged. To, when they're down in the dumps, when, they've, when they're losing hope in God or his faithfulness, and you talk to them, their chin begins to rise. Wind begins to blow in their sails a little bit more. The sun begins to peek out from behind the crowds. And you should expect your friends who don't know the Lord to experience something of that too. If you're a gifted teacher, you have the gift of knowledge and you just, your brain, where other people see chaos and dots that aren't connected, you see how all of it connects. You see the picture that they make and you're able to communicate that, teach people, help them. You should expect them to be blessed as well. So these gifts, the bullseye for your gifts is the community of believers, but there's a beautiful and intentional spillover effect onto those around you who don't even know God as well for their edification, for them being brought in to and near to God. So if I had to give you my just short one-sentence definition, what's a spiritual gift? It's a God-given tool 
to make a difference for the gospel. It's a God-given tool to make a difference, to play out your priestly role. This is the missing piece. You've got the mission, you've got the role, you've got the place, now you've got the tool. And now you can execute the mission. Why a spiritual gift? Well, maybe that's an obvious question because it's from the spirit of Jesus. From the third person of the Trinity, which means the gifts that you have, which as I'm talking, you can scan down the last few sentences of the passage. When he's talking about these gifts, he's saying these gifts are from God. They're of supernatural origin. That's why they're spiritual gifts. They're of supernatural origin, which means add to the list of things you didn't choose or ask for, uh, but God gave. You didn't ask who to be born to, what year to be born, that you would be born, when you would be born, what gender you would be, where you would live. You also didn't ask for or originate your gifts. God was delighted to choose for you and give them to you. We receive them. It's a gift. We receive them. We contributed nothing to their origin, but we receive them. So they're from God. They're from him. So they're an invitation, invitation to join him in his mission. So they're of a supernatural origin. They're also spiritual gifts. They're also supernatural gifts because they have a supernatural impact. They're from a supernatural origin, but they have a supernatural impact as well. Talk about the joy when you see Jesus use you to draw someone who doesn't know him into resurrection life through your words because you're a gifted evangelist. Through your hospitality, somebody who has just felt crippled by loneliness, they feel invisible in every room they've ever walked into, finally, somebody sees them. And God is signaling, I see you, but it's through you in your living room or your text. Supernatural impact. I am a Christian because a man named Gary Purdy, who had the gift of teaching and preaching, studied his Bible, parable of the prodigal son, and he probably went out to some coffee shop, and God used the gift that he gave Gary to make sense of that passage and to find compelling ways to teach that passage, and the Spirit worked through the gift that he gave Gary, and sitting right over there, I heard the gospel with ears God had given me to hear it. And my eyes opened for the first time and my heart softened and God was real and he was beautiful and I wanted him and I knew I needed him and I knew he was giving himself to me. I met up with Gary about three months after that because I joined this church and we were sitting at Mayfield or Mayflower Cafe downtown. No one goes there anymore, right? Um, and he was interviewing, he was an elder here at this church and uh, he was assigned to me to interview me for my membership and he was like, so what's your story? How long have you been a Christian? And I said, well, I've been near to God most my whole life. I was raised in the church, but the lights came on about three months ago. And he says, oh, interesting. Like, tell me about it. That sounds amazing. And I was like, well, uh, it was the night that you were speaking on Luke, the parable of the prodigal son. I'd heard that passage a million times before, but 
And his eyes are just, he had no idea. Uh, you know the Asbury Revival? Have you heard about the Asbury Revival happening up or going on in Kentucky? Seems to be some kind of legitimacy to that. There's humility, there's repentance, there's a soft spirit about it. It's not a celebrity event. Uh, it started with a chapel speech by a guy, I don't even know his name. He was there. Do you know what he texted his wife as soon as he got done giving that chapel message that led into a revival? He said, just preached another stinker, be home soon. He felt like he just bombed, like it was terrible. I feel that some nights. Casey feels that when she teaches at Freshman Fellowship. Grace feels that. You community group leaders, you Freshman Fellowship leaders, those of y'all who share the gospel with your friends, you ever feel like it just was a dud? The fact that your gifts are of supernatural origin means the pressure's off. God uses messages that are stinkers, that are bombs, that just don't. It's his gift. He's so delighted to work through weak people using his supernatural gifts for the sake of other people. The pressure's off. If it's your gift, you're the originator of it. If it's like, hey, y'all, in view of God's mission, don't you know he wants to draw the world to himself through his son? In view of his mission, Get busy. Get better at all this stuff. Everybody's got to level up perfectly across the board. That's not what he's saying. In view of God's mercy, the pressure's off. What he's asking of you is learn the tool he's put in your hand and use it dependently and faithfully and prayerfully with joy. Does God need you? Is the kingdom of Jesus going to come to a grinding halt if you don't step up? No, God doesn't need you. He wants you. He delights in his little sons and daughters running out in the yard, helping him with the yard work. Might have shared this story with you before, might not have, but when I was a little kid, um, Saturday was work day. 7 a.m., every kid, get out of bed, get breakfast, get out of the yard, you're helping dad. And I think I was about three or four. My Evangeline is about three, three and a half, and um, I was about that age. My dad would mow the lawn every Saturday, and um, he, that my parents bought me this little plastic lawnmower, little Tykes lawnmower, and it put bubble, bubble soap in it, and you push it, and bubbles come out. And um, I remember to this day, vividly, looking at the tall grass in front of my, uh, so my dad would do the rows. He would start you know, kind of rowing out the yard, cutting the grass, and I would look in front of my dad with his mower, and I'd see the tall grass, and I'd come right behind him. And I looked behind me and the grass was cut, it was manicured. And I'm like, this is amazing. I'm cutting the grass. And honest to the Lord, I thought for years I was cutting the grass. I was walking behind my father as he cut the grass. Why'd my dad get me that little lawnmower? <laughs> because he wanted me to join him in his work. It was another opportunity to be with me, to share the mission of the family, the work of the family, a chance to bond, to be together, to commune, to enjoy his work. He was inviting me into a, a piece of his life. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves his people so much 
with a big smile on his face, he delights to wake you up and say, hey, come on out. Come join me. And you get to experience the joy of looking at things in front of you that are chaotic and disorderly and discouraged and things behind you that look clarified and put in order and minds that aren't confused anymore but are well taught. People who've never heard good news who've been evangelized. And you look behind you and you're like, oh my gosh. Look at this. Now the metaphor breaks down this way. Your lawnmower works. Your gifts work. They're not little plastic versions that blow bubbles. You are God's plan A to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus in Athens, Georgia, in your classes, especially if you have that gift. We're all called to bear witness. Some of you are evangelists. You've never met a stranger. You have a way about you where you're not offensive. You share the gospel, and it's not like, you know, your king Midas, everything you touch is gold, but people are, like, intrigued and drawn in. I hope you learn to use that tool more and more and more and more and teach those in the room that might not have that gift so that they can bear witness, too. You're God's plan A, encouragers. You're God's plan A to encourage your roommates. Don't look around for anybody else. You're the adult in the room. You're the one intended to deliver God's grace to them through you. Supernatural impact from supernatural origin. I call these, when we go through this in Freshman Fellowship every year, a lot of you have heard this, but I call these your superpowers because they're of supernatural origin and they have a supernatural impact and they're joining God on his supernatural mission. But I want to ask you, do you think of yourself as having superpowers? Do you kind of fancy yourself like Batman or something where has it, you just kind of like tear your shirt and there's, there's something otherworldly about you that you have ability in, proficiency in. Doesn't mean you're awesome at it, perfect at it, but it just comes a little more naturally or more easily to you. Here's the thing. I know it's a somewhat comical illustration, but I'm, not, I'm being serious. Those of you who know you have superpowers, use them. Those of you who don't think you have superpowers, don't use them. What a tragedy Superman who doesn't, isn't aware that he has superpowers. What a loss. What a loss to Gotham, a Batman who doesn't realize he has superpowers and just sits around calling 911 all the time. Do you believe Jesus when he says he has given you gifts? Do you want to start learning what tool he put in your hands? He didn't put a lot of tools, just two or three maybe. You're not good at a lot of stuff. He's made you really good at a few things. Maybe tonight, my prayer and my goal is just that this would provoke thought in you, that you would scan the QR code, you'd read the article, you'd pray, you'd go read this passage more, you'd talk to roommates. I was in my just my mid-20s the first time I began to get clarity about the tools that Jesus had put in my hands. I hope you'll do that as well. Paul says... Earlier on in the passage, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment. That's what he says. In view of God's mercy, and then he goes on to say, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, 
but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Why would Paul have to caution us to have humility? Isn't it obvious? Spiritual gifts doesn't mean you're batting a thousand at whatever your gift is. Doesn't mean you feel strong. Um, Some of our friends up here have the gift of musical ability. They have the gift of leadership too because they lead us in worship. You ask any of them, are there weeks you don't want to be up here? Are there weeks you feel like you're digging from the bottom of the barrel with barely nothing to give? They'd say, maybe, probably frequently. Are there weeks I don't want to be up here? I feel weak, embarrassed by what I have prepared? Yeah. Are there weeks you feel that way? Yes. Yeah. Supernatural origin, supernatural impact doesn't mean you feel supernatural. It means what God is doing through you is supernatural. But we can get confused about this and we can think, well, man, um, I'm a gifted leader. I've got the gift of knowledge. My mind's a steel trap. I can just dispense theology to people. You see how that can breed arrogance when you forget the origin of your gift and the recipient of your gift? So Paul cautions humility. The origin of your gifts pushes you down. John Calvin said, there's two things that bring me the most humility in my life. My greatest weaknesses, that's obvious. And my greatest strengths. Things you contributed nothing to. God just gave you facility in it, ease in it, power in it. So Paul cautions humility, not thinking yourself more highly than you ought, but also the recipient of your gifts should bring us down to size. I share this illustration in Freshman Fellowship as well. It might be familiar to you, but think about this. Every gift that you have has somebody else's name and address on it. It's not for you. Don't hear me wrong. There's, you will experience tremendous joy and fun in using the gifts, the tools God has given you. You'll really enjoy it, especially as you begin to hone that, get a sense of what it is, and double down in your lane. It'll become really fun to you. Um, but every gift you have is ultimately for another person. Paul said in Ephesians 4, it's for building up the body. Paul says here, other parts of the body are dependent upon you. And you're dependent on other people in the body to share with you the gifts they have. So in these ways, uh, Paul, Paul shows us that every gift we have has somebody else's address on it and someone else's name. Think of why people order packages. Yeah, there's the kind of the night shoppers, impulse buyers. But everybody else who has an Amazon package show up on their door. Why is it there? It's something that they needed. Could be medicine. Could be some book. They're stuck in a really hard place in life, and that book is their last hope. And Jesus is saying, you're my delivery man. You're my delivery girl. And the only way that package is ever landing on her doorstep is because you're going to drop it off. You're going to be so embedded in her life, or you're going to move towards her in such a way that you're going to receive from me what I'm delivering to her. What amazement that God would include us in that delivery process. Every gift you have has somebody else's name and address on it. How foolish and silly would it be, you know, that UPS or Amazon driver, every morning they back their little van up at the warehouse and they get loaded up with packages and they sit back and they're like, look at me, look at me. Look at all these people who gave me gifts. I'm amazing. And you'd be like, are you insane? 
get to work. You're like, these aren't, don't you see the names on the packages? They're not for you. You're just supposed to deliver them to people. Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't you realize your gifts are for the building up of other people? For bringing glory to God? Um, then that brings us humility too. Have you ever had a delivery person, a mailman or a UPS driver, Amazon driver, who realized that they were delivering joy? They really got into their job. We have a mailman right now who, when we have a package and the kids are out in the driveway, he pulls up, big old smile on his face. He's like, hey, I got a package for you today. And the kids are squealing. They bring the package inside and they say, now they can read, but they used to be like, who's it for? Who's it for? You don't have to be a depressed delivery person who's like, I got all this stuff I got to deliver. Do you realize what joy you're bringing to people? What help you're bringing to people who desperately have been praying for help and you're the answer to their prayer? You can have, we can have a smile on our face as we go about the Lord's work as priests using the tools that he's put in our hands in the places that he's called us in Babylon, in the world, in UGA, in Athens, in your house, in your family. What humility, what joy that God includes us in a mission like this. So what are we supposed to do with these gifts? What do we do with our gifts? First, you've got to discern them. I've been alluding to this. Uh, the Keller article covers it a lot more thoroughly than I'm going to. But basically, you've got to figure out what they are. On the mission trip, there were some tools that got put in some people's hands, and they're like, what's this? And Hector sits there and patiently shows them, well, here's the on-off button. Here's what it does. Here's how you need to hold it. Use this angle, not that angle. God is going to have to teach you how to use the gifts he gave you. Um, but how do you actually learn how to use them and learn what they are? Uh, to run with the metaphor, you go on mission trips. To pull it into real life, you just do stuff. You try stuff. Some of you have had lots of internships already, and you have the clarity that your roommates who've never done internships are praying for and don't yet have. God has shown you what you're not supposed to do with your future by giving you internships that you hated. And he might have begun to intrigue you and show you what your lane is by giving you internships you loved. You had to get out there and try stuff and do stuff. Next week when we have these meetings, you don't have to be super passionate or it's like your childhood dream to work with freshmen. You could serve anywhere. Because you're at a stage of life where for most of you, God is just beginning to clarify the tools that he put in your hands and how to use them. What he's looking for from you is faithfulness. What would it have been like if Hector's going around to the work site and he's like, hey, here's the shovels for digging the trench and you're like, I wasn't really thinking about a shovel. I mean, you know, I, I think about these other tools. I actually don't even want to do this job. What about another job? That's what faithlessness looks like. That's what making you the point of the whole endeavor instead of the mission, and the one who's leading the mission, that's what that looks like. So we gotta discern our gifts, we gotta just try stuff, and over time we learn through experience what we enjoy, what we're passionate about, what God ma has made us good at, and what he's made other people good at that we need to depend on. But once you get clarity about what you're good at, you double down. God has not equipped his people to be generalists good at everything. American culture will tell you that. UGA will tell you that. Be a Renaissance woman. Be good at everything. 
Jesus says, that's hogwash. How could you possibly be great at everything? He says, why don't you focus on the two or three things that I gave you superpowers for? And why don't in humility and weakness you go to your brothers and your sisters who have the gifts you lack and say, I'm having the hardest time trusting God and you go to your friend with encouragement or discernment and Jesus delivers you encouragement through them. So we double down when we know that we have a gift. Where I want to end, y'all, is this. Just those first few verses. In view, not in view of God's mission. He didn't say that. He didn't say in view of God's command. He didn't say that. Paul has couched this entire conversation we've had tonight in view of the merciful way God has treated you and dealt with you which he's talking about the way he's treated you in Jesus, not holding your sins against you, and the way he still treats you, including you, calling you out to the lawn to say, I want to be with you. As I gather the nations to myself through my beloved son, Jesus, I want you to be a part of the work. In view of his mercy, offer your bodies. You only have one body. He's talking about all of you, not your margin, not your free time. Studying for test is ministry. Going to class is ministry. Hanging out with friends is ministry. Doing your internship is ministry. All of it. Offer your whole bodies, yourself, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. This is your true and proper or your spiritual act of worship. It's all sacred. It's all priestly service. And it's how God is intending to bless and build up his people in the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, As we've already said, this is horrible news if it doesn't come packaged in your work on the cross. It's just duty. It's just legalism. It's just get out there and bust it for God. Unless you yourself have poured yourself out as a living sacrifice for us to build us up, to give us life, As part of you building us up, would you teach us which tools you put in our hands and how to use them? Would we get to look back on our college years and say, God used me there? Pray it in your name.